0: Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, why do some people love to be scared? Margie Kerr is a sociologist, and she's gonna help us understand how fear works in our brains and why some people love watching horror movies and why others really, really don't. I'm looking at you, Shane. On the World of Weird Things with Greg Fish, we learn about zombie planets. Just in time for Halloween, these planets are made from the death of a solar system and might just be the most fascinating rocks in the universe. And if we have an opportunity, to stay healthy this winter. Alyssa B gets tips on staying active, mindful, and healthy even as the snow starts falling and the candy gets more tempting. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast.
1: The Shift has happened. And I don't say that because it's the name of my show. I say it because it's truly happening. One of the things that we've shared here on the program has been the weather across the country because it's been so widely different. Over the last week, the weather in the West has gone from being absolutely gorgeous to sliding down. Winter is here and in Ontario. Well, and even in Manitoba, actually, you guys have gone from being cooler, wetter and all those things. Then you got really nice. Now it kind of shifted the other way. Regardless, any way you look at it, um, it's changing. And for me, it seems like it's changing a little bit differently this year. Maybe it was the bonus month of nice weather that we got. Alyssa B is here from Mm nourished.ca. And uh, Alyssa, you've noticed it too because you're on the West Coast. So you've seen a bonus three weeks of sunshine, which is not typical. But here we are, and it is coming crashing down real quick.
2: Sure is. Sure is. I welcome it actually. After what it was a a stalled fall and an absolutely beautiful extended uh, summer. That being said, I'm really welcoming this now because we need it so bad. We need the rain. We actually had you know in the west here in Vancouver we had smoke last week. Mm-hmm. In fact, the weather warnings. I mean, outdoor activities were canceled because uh, the conditions were that bad. So I'm really. You know, welcoming the cooler weather. I'm welcoming the mistier mornings, but it definitely because it's it's so delayed. It definitely feels a lot heavier to deal with.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, and and it seems to come because it's changing so quickly. It seems to be also hitting people now. A bonus for you if you're Ontario, Ontario. This past weekend you had nice. You had 20 degrees while the rest of us slipped downhill. Uh, but here we are doing it now. If I've learned anything, I've learned that. The fuel we put in our bodies has such a big impact on it. I really noticed it this weekend, uh, Alyssa, this past weekend as I I went out is what I did. I went out and I I had some drinks and all those things. And I knew going into the weekend that I wasn't hydrated enough. And I'm not a big drinker anyway. But having a Mm -hmm. few drinks and not being hydrated enough and not really eating the best through the course of the end of the week last week as time started to really crunch me. I felt the impact of it. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm the old guy who got a hangover and I'm like, I can't do this anymore. It wasn't like that at all, actually. It was just, you know what? This doesn't feel right. And so I thought that we would start this fall conversation on, on food and being mindful to our bodies. Where does that land for you? Because I know that that's a big part. Listening, boy, oh! if we all could just listen you know, in general, we'd feel much if better. We could
2: listen to our body. Can I just go back to that? Because I thought that was really interesting. You said, I, I can't do this anymore, like that old man ha- met hangover mentality. It's actually, it's not that you can't do it, right? Because you can do it. It's just that you choose not to anymore. And there's a really big sense of freedom when you when you when you when you think about that. And it's about being mindful because you really you can do it. You just choose not to now because you know that um, putting that into your body doesn't make you feel good. So you actually no longer want to choose to do that. So it's a, it's going back to the mindfulness piece that you were talking about, and really thinking about what works for you now where you are in your life, you know, what is working. So Becoming more mindful as we, you know, move into a different season, will really go, you know, the extra difference when you when you sit down for a second, give yourself a minute, be like, okay, what what is it that I really need right now? Like, am I hungry? Am I thirsty? That's a big one. Um, am I tired? You know, am I tired? What? Why am I, you know, going to the snack cabinet? You know, eating the chips am I really hungry for that? Is that what I really need? Or am I emotional? Am I bored? I'm emotional. Am I exhausted? I can tell you. What is it?
1: Yeah. So I am absolutely (laughs) emotional. I've started snacking again, um, which I haven't been doing, and all those things going on. Okay, so we talk about mindfulness. Your focus is nourishment Mm -hmm. and food. I mean, spiritual element to it all too. So, um, But when we talk about mindfulness, I think sometimes some people go, I am mindful. I do pay attention. And here's the thing. And I, I say this with no judgment on anybody mindfulness is like an end, endless river, right? So if you think you're mindful, chances are you got more to give because even the most mindful of the people still have more to give and more to discover in mindfulness. I don't want people to think that it's a switch that turns on and off because you really, I mean, some people will say, oh, you guys keep talking about mindfulness. I already know that. But
2: the... the it's a practice. It is. I mean, that's what it is. It, it's a practice. It it's not something that... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you can, you can scratch the surface by being more mindful about the things that you put in your mouth. And then what you'll notice, and that's why I take a holistic um, view on this, is that when you become mindful of the things that you eat, you will start noticing a shift in the way you feel, which yep. makes you become mindful even more. So again, it, it's a practice and, it, and it's cyclical because the more you eat well, the better you feel, and the better you feel, the more you want to eat well, because you want to continue feeling so good. So it it really is like this circular um, shift in mentality, I guess, actually, a shift in behavioral patterns that then leads to a shift in total mentality.
1: Yeah, your decision making starts to change. That's the part that I've noticed, mm-hmm. and it, it like, and with that comes the fact that you're like, you know what? I really want hot buttered popcorn and salt tonight, and I know I'm going to pay the price, mm-hmm. so I'm going to have an extra glass of water before I go to bed, and I'm going to have mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. an extra chunk of water before I, you know, when I get up in the morning. And but then at least you're doing it with the intention of knowing that I'm going to eat this, and it's going to make me feel kind of crappy, but I'm prepared for that, and it's not going to affect my day tomorrow. So let's change the word, change the clarity. That's what I always do. So let's take mine. If mindful escapes you, because maybe you don't feel like you understand that or it's not for you. And let's just go with intention and start the conversation Mm -hmm. of food and intention. How do you feel about um, food diaries and looking at it that way? Because sometimes we aren't, we don't pay attention to what we put in our face holes. And sometimes we feel crappy, but we don't really remember what we did. And do you find that Mm -hmm. tracking and some of the more logical approaches can help?
2: It depends. Obviously, uh, we have tools for so many things. Um, I think a food journal is really a very good tool for the people who need that type of tool. Not everybody can use that type of tool, they get stressed about it, they get overwhelmed over, they have to write down every little detail. But if you can keep a food journal, and roughly keep and log, you know, what you eat, what time of day you eat, and then how you feel afterwards, I think that is the most um, useful way of a log. I don't think it's useful to log calories and count um, servings. But if you if you say, okay, lunchtime, I had a salad with chia seeds and pumpkin seeds, I had some chicken on top, I was full, I had lots of energy until four o'clock. So if you can keep te- if you can keep a food journal like that, that gives you some insight into how you're feeling and where your energy levels are. I think that's fantastic. Um, and if it's a tool that helps you, I think that's great. So let's say you get a four o'clock slump, then you can go back to your log and be like, huh, what did I eat for lunch? Oh, okay, I see what I did. I ate a big plate of pasta, didn't have any protein, and I see my sugar levels could crash and that's why I'm so exhausted at four o'clock. So there are lots of, use. this is a useful tool if you can use it in that way. I had but that- if you're using it to to track your calories, Yeah, Um, I I think that just makes it way uh, more rigid and you're putting yourself in a box because you've already had this many calories. And even if you're hungry, you can't have any more. So those types of things I think are really just um, systems that will set us up for disaster. Like Uh they just don't work. They just make you feel worse.
1: Well, calories are an important part of our lives, but they don't necessarily fill us up or make us feel hungry. It's just the fact that you could be eating the wrong things. I I noticed this. I made some uh, like a rice noodle pasta, with spaghetti sauce with like a, a ground beef in it kind of thing. And it was just a nice, okay. quick, easy meal for my son because he had hockey the next two days. And so he wanted to, you like know, a
2: gluten-free pasta.
1: Yeah, gluten-free pasta. It was a rice noodle. Yeah. yeah and okay. so, um, and so we, uh, we did all that and everything was great. And I ate my plate and I looked at my plate and I was like, holy cow. Like I ate the whole thing. Like I was starving. And then of course I ate it quickly. And I didn't feel good afterwards. I looked at my son's plate and he's larger than I am, typically eats more than I do. And I I was like, oh, wow, he didn't eat very much. So that I put that contrast into it. Why was I hungry from earlier in the day? How did I feel later in the day when we did the shift? You know, how, all those things start to kick into it. Is that a good example of how simple mindfulness can be around our food?
2: A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Also, you're getting to the table, you're, you're getting to your dinner plate. You probably were quick to make it. Maybe he was out to get pu- out to get to rush off the hockey, like it, it depends on what the circumstance was and you finally got there and oh my God, you dug right into this huge plate of pasta, right? right. Maybe you didn't take a moment to be like, oh, let's just take a minute and be like, I just cooked this for us. We're gonna sit down, we're gonna have a conversation. Like it, it, all, it all depends on, you know, the, the, the circumstance. So I always like to tell my clients before they're about to eat, whether it's a quick breakfast or a smoothie or sitting down to a beautiful plate of pasta, have a second, take a moment and just acknowledge the food that you are about to have. That is another piece and component of mindfulness. And it makes you, you know, quiet your mind, it makes you have a moment. And also, it will make you and help you slow down in the eating process, because eating too fast is really hard on the digestion. As you said, you, you, you overeat, because you don't allow your body to digest and give you the signals that, Hey, Shane, like I'm full. I don't have to finish the plate. I'm good. I can save the rest for tomorrow.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, slowing down's a big one on your list of tips for mindfulness. I know that. And also the chewing your food um, part, yeah. but you also say put down the phone, which we're I'm sure all guilty of or turning off the TV while you mm-hmm. eat. Um, is that um that really has got to be one of the keys i mean we see it in every aspect of our lives today i feel like we're flogging a dead horse here but the reality is, we're is all so I, distracted well and i'm i'm 100% guilty of it 100% cuz i want to be productive i got to get things done right and i create where does I'm, that
2: mentality come in though right like where is that it's just the constant go 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 oh, and we feed it we feed onto it because i'm guilty there of creating i can, can even do
1: it. i all own that one as an example for everybody is that i i create self importance right that's what I go through. I, I create these things about, oh, I got to get this done for so-and-so and, oh, this is a big deal. And I'm trying, this is a big thing for me, is to go and say, you know, what do you actually want to do? And so I'm creating importance out of urgency. And so, but then that trickles down yes. into all aspects of my life. And when I'm not paying attention, it it's there, there it is in my food, in my eating.
2: Mm-hmm. It shows up everywhere in our life, exactly. And eating should be, I mean, it's not, and I'm guilty of it too, and I'm preaching this, but, you know, sometimes stuff comes up and you have to... at your desk or you have to prepare something really quick i mean there's not always that time that you can do that but for the majority of the time especially at dinner and especially when you're with people it's really important to kind of take a pause take a moment look at your food and whether you want to say it out loud or you want to just say it to yourself and just be thankful that you're here in this moment in this time about to enjoy this meal because there was a point in, in all of our lives where food was sacred And this was a ritual. And what has happened is that we have just taken out the ritual. We've taken out the sacredness of of eating. And we're really fortunate that we are able to, you know, have the food on our table. And just taking that moment and taking a pause is super important for yourself and also to teach the people around you. You know, sometimes people look at me and they think I'm funny or whatever, or woo-woo. But um, it really helps me center myself before I'm about to have a big meal. And then I don't overeat. And overeating taxes your digestion. And especially if it's at nighttime, that also trickles into your digestion and how you sleep. So if you're eating late and you're eating too much late, well, now we have some sleeping issues. Now you're going to be digesting at nighttime when you're supposed to be um, rejuvenating. Your body is supposed to be resting and repairing. And now we've kind of, you know, moved into that area. And then we wake up and we're tired. Mm -hmm. Our body hasn't been able to rejuvenate the way it's supposed to. Yeah. So it trickles into the next day and then you wake up and you probably wake up hungry um, because your body's been doing so much work and then you probably overeat again. So it's really important to tackle the mindfulness and tackle the intention, bringing the attention into the daily activities, right?
1: Well, and alcohol is a a good one for me where I take, uh, I've been really, if I'm thirsty, um, I try to make sure I'm not thirsty before I enjoy alcohol because I like the taste of alcohol. Mm-hmm. I like different alcohols make me feel, I notice how it makes me feel differently. So I like to enjoy that and um, specifically maybe choose an alcohol for a situation for how I feel and all of that. And I, like I said, I'm not like a get drunk kind of guy. I don't think my kids have ever seen me drunk. Uh, it's never been one of those things. So I do like to enjoy. So if I take away the thirsty, then I actually enjoy The drinking uh, as opposed to drinking because I'm thirsty. Therefore, you know, get a little tipsy or have a little too much. So we we have a bit of an opportunity in front of us, Alyssa. It's nourished.ca for the nutrition stuff with Alyssa B, by the way. Um, The opportunity in front of us, we're post-Thanksgiving. We've still got this chunk of time, you know, two months to Christmas, roughly. And Mm -hmm. uh, we've got Halloween coming up. Good opportunity to understand what kind of treats we love to have versus the I'm going to fill my my face with all the treats I can and maybe have some uh, healthy notions around Halloween and also a couple of habits as we shift into fall and fall eating. Uh, What do you have? Because you have recipes at nourish.ca. What do you have? What comes to mind when we say that?
2: Well, what comes to mind first and foremost with Halloween is in going back to thirst, hydrate, drink as much water as possible super important, especially when there's candy all over the place and treats all over the place. And, you know, you walk into the reception, there's Hershey Kisses and there's everybody's got Halloween stuff. If you are thirsty, your body's going to immediately reach and want sugar, even though your body is thirsty. So keep hydrated. I always like to say, you know, two or three Mason jars, something like, you know, eight, eight liters of water, 16 liters of water every single day, flavor it with water. And when there's candy around, like double that because your, your body will just, your brain will just naturally gravitate towards the candy. So hydrate number one, and you're probably noticing candy starting about now everywhere. Right. So make this an exercise to incorporate more water in, as you drink um, into your day. Number two is like, don't deprive yourself. If you like candy and you like chocolate, have two, have three, but don't, don't overdo it because then you're taxing your body again. So, Definitely, um, what I've seen is that deprivation doesn't work. Diets don't work. So if you're going to say, I can't have any Halloween candy, I'm not going to have any Halloween candy. By the sixth or seventh day, guess what's going to happen? You're going to overindulge on the Halloween candy. So if Halloween is your thing, I know lots of people who like candy and they like the chocolates in in Halloween, um, in those Halloween little wrappers, have two or three little ones. It's not going to hurt you. But if you have two or three little ones every single day, that adds up for for a full week. So pick your days and pick your poison. And another thing is that if you're able to, have a little bit higher quality uh, treats around. So, you know, anything like chocolate, anything over 72% cacao is actually very healthy for you. And cacao is known to be a superfood, which has iron and magnesium in it. So look at the wrapper. And if it's over 72, enjoy it chances are you're not going to want more than one or two pieces of the higher quality chocolate because it satisfies you. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing with the drugstore candy and the grocery store candy um, it's full of, full of sugar, added sugar, full of chemicals, full of um, food dyes. It's never really, it never really satisfies that sweet tooth as opposed to a higher quality chocolate. So those are my recommendations. Um, and then when we're talking about recipes and things to make during Halloween time, now is the time to root down and ground yourself in root vegetables, like sweet potatoes, beets, um, yams. All of these type of root vegetables really help you ground you into your body. And they're naturally sweet. So they may even help you with your, your sweet cravings. Because when you're constantly seeing sweets all around you, you're bio- biologically, you're just gonna gravitate towards sweet. So try eating sweet potatoes. Um I have a couple really great recipes on my website. The warm winter salad is one of them. The loaded sweet potato, which is a sweet potato baked sweet potato with black beans and spinach and curry. This is super grounding, so that's another really great one um, to look through. You can even, you know, make smoothies that have pumpkin in it. I have them on my website. Using cinnamon and nutmeg and other types of grounding spices also really helps um, warm yourself up during this time of year and root down into and connect into yourself this time of year.
1: Alyssa B and nourished.ca, looking forward to the next few weeks. And by the time I get to Christmas and Nanaimo bars are everywhere, I look forward to indulging in the dark, healthy chocolate, but at the same time uh, being already having the habits that lets me have a little bit here and there and not crushing it. So <laughs> they're so good.
2: <laughs> I love Nanaimo bars too. Love I know. them. They're the best. Let's all agree. One and done.
1: Thanks for being here. Nourish.ca. If you want to get more, I'll post the links up at shiftheads.ca. Alyssa, always the pleasure is mine.
2: Thank you so much, Shane. This is the Shift Podcast.
1: I don't like getting scared. That's for sure that's where this conversation starts please don't jump scare me boo scare me i don't like scary movies any of it it might go back to maybe a scary movie that i watched when i was younger let's think it was friday the 13th couldn't stand with my back to a shower for a really long time and um but i've carried that with me i'm like a psychologist dream joining me now is a sociologist somebody who studies people and societies part-time faculty, University of Pittsburgh, with a PhD in sociology, and our guest is Margie. Margie Kerr, thank you for being here.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: So, you study the people. Let's talk about scary things, Margie. What the hell? Why do people like getting scared? Do you like getting
3: scared? I do, in the right context. It's definitely all about context, that's for sure.
1: What is a good scare context for Margie, then?
3: Um, it has to be choice. it has to be my choice, something that you know I want to do and that I'm right. not pressured into doing um, and an experience where I can maintain a sense of autonomy and control at all times
1: it's like going so, to a haunted house on your own accord kind of thing
3: right exactly. Yep. watching
1: a scary movie because you turned it on
3: yep, yep, and uh, startles can be fun you know by friends, but when really thinking about the benefits of um you know, being scared, choosing to be scared and and why people do it. It's typically within the context of, of choice.
1: Right. Okay. So getting scared and um, being scared though, there are, I guess there are different kinds when you, when you look at the study of the people in the scared, what kinds of scared do we find?
3: Um, Well, I mean, it, fear looks different for everybody. And even across our life, you know, we have lots of different types of feeling fear. If, if people just kind of view their internal kind of Rolodex of scary experiences, they'll find that there are lots of different types and they felt lots of different ways. So um, in terms of the different types of scares or different types of feeling fear, it's, it's just it's really endless. Um, But when it comes to why people like to do it, we have our research at University of Pittsburgh has found some some reasons that that help, you know, add insight into why people might like to do these scary activities.
1: So I like the mindful look of all of this. And so this is where I go. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on the perspective that I guess I hold as I look at fear. Philosophically speaking, we're built for fear. I would go as far as to say we live in fear all day. And what we strive to do in our lives is to not be afraid that fear is the default setting. So why in the world would somebody purposefully go seek out more of the thing that they do their best to avoid in all ways?
3: Well, I think that we, we are always in a position where we're going to have a threat response. So the threat response um, is universal um, to to all living species. It's the automatic response that we have to something that is startling, something that um, we didn't expect, anything that is new and unusual, and that we don't, we didn't expect. Basically, is going to generate that threat response. Um, the meaning that we make of that, though, is going to change based on context. So, you know, it's it's really in those moments where we're not only looking to get scared, but we're also looking to have fun, to be with friends, to have moments that will form really strong memories. So there's lots of, of layers to you know, wanting to feel fear in the what I call fun, scary context. So I don't think that necessarily people are saying, oh my gosh, I'm afraid all the time and I want to go feel that some more. Um, they're looking to feel that intensity in their body, that kind of adrenaline and the the natural high in an environment of their own choosing where where they can associate those same feelings with positivity.
1: Is it just the sort of dopamine hit hit that I mean we are kind of a bunch of drug addicts in today's world, if well hormone addicts, if you will, in that we're constantly seeking out with all of the stimulation we have today, call it socials, death scrolling, whatever maybe it's uh, leading us, maybe it's a gateway drug down to scary movies because our bodies are going, come on, man, make me feel good. Maybe it's not good. Make me feel something.
3: I don't think it's just the the chemical changes that happen alone um, because those chemical changes that happen when we are, you know, frightened, when we're startled, um, we see those kinds of changes in a lot of different contexts, whether it's, you know, going to a scary movie or a haunted house or a stranger, you know, approaching you on the street, you're going to see a lot of those changes. So it's really the context that makes the difference. And the natural high is a very real thing. You know, people do um, have all of these new hormone, not new, but an increased circulation of hormones and neurotransmitters and different uh, chemicals in the body that can work to make us feel really strong, really powerful. Um, And and that can feel really good. Um, For other people, that same reaction, though, can feel awful. Um, And then, you know, the context is going to, to influence that, too the meaning
1: that we make of those changes. Well, isn't that it, right? We we are meaning-making machines, though. We, we are. Like to, we yeah. like to put a lot of meaning on all of it. Um, yeah. You know, the science of of fear, um, and I know that in your credentials, you've actually done pain, too, uh, some work inside pain. And yeah. so I find that I find those two to kind of cross over. Now, I'm not a PhD. I'm not educated. And I, I'm sort of curious as to is, so that stimulation part, and I am so far out of my lane, margie so it's okay i look for your correction um but here's what i assume is that when you have pain and people who like they poke themselves or they you know they they like the like no i don't mean like cutting or hurting yourself i just mean stimulation pain like just Mm -hmm. feel it like elastic band on your wrist all those kinds of things um you can control when that starts and stops you can control when watching a scary movie starts and stops do we just need to create the distinction of fear from um going to a scary movie versus actual fear because you could be in the woods like many scary movies are based on, I would just like to say, Mm -hmm. and you could be absolutely terrified because you hear that noise or whatever and not feel okay anymore because you're not in control. Do we need to create that distinction?
3: I I think that we we really kind of automatically do, you know, and there have been some different brain imaging studies that show that, you know, it's such a foundational difference when we, have a sense that we're in control versus not in control. Um, So it really changes everything that happens thereafter. So the moment that we feel like our life is truly in danger, that we're really unsafe, it it impacts the feelings that we have afterwards, the way that our sympathetic nervous system is going to respond, whether it's going to continue kicking up the the gas or whether we're going to start putting on the brakes and having an understanding of, okay, well, we're, we're not actually in danger. We're all right. So, that moment is such a, a critical moment that that kind of the paths diverge into whether this is going to be a potentially traumatic experience or a memorable fun entertaining experience uh,
1: well the haunted house thing really strikes me I think there's a couple of different kinds of people that go into a haunted house or maybe I should say there's a couple of kind of people that come out of a haunted house um, there are the people that go uh, come out of a haunted house they go whoa, that one really got me, you know, my heart is racing, you know, that was crazy. Thanks, Bob. That was fun, right? There's those people. And then there's the people that come out and they're just laughing because they, and frankly, could be a fear response in itself. Yeah. But then there's the people that go in and literally break down. They lose the complete context that they are in a staged performance, and they crumple into a ball and they sit in the corner and you talk about traumatic experiences. This is probably something that's going to need some time on a couch with a psychologist, right? Like, so there are, there are three different scenarios as I see it from the outside where this, where reality breaks down. And when we can't distinguish any longer, when I watch a scary movie, I get enthralled in the movie. It's because I like to feel the emotions of actors in all movies but somehow in scary movies, we're supposed to break that proscenium, if you will, break down the wall.
3: Well, I think that those moments where in a, in a haunted house where, you know, people do kind of retreat into themselves and they're no longer able to move. They've they've got an expression on their face that is really saying, I am not okay. Um, when I talk to haunt designers and haunt owners and operators, you know, I always do stress the importance of teaching the actors and all the staff to recognize those moments because they are, um, very, uh, you know, sensitive moments for people and deserving of, of someone, you know, going in and pulling that person out and saying, let me walk you to the exit, um, or checking in with them and saying, are you okay? Do you need to, to leave? Um, the last thing that you want any staff to do is to, make fun of that person and say, oh my gosh, you're such a chicken, you know, you didn't make it through, blah, 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 because clearly that person is no longer having a good time. And in these experiences, ultimately the goal is some sort of entertainment. And as soon as it stops being entertaining, stops being a pathway to something positive, um, then, you know, you just try to get that person back to a, a space where they feel like they can make their own decisions again
1: it's really funny, I think, uh, Margie, to be talking about responsibility in horror and terror, Um, responsible practice right inside haunted houses. It makes sense, though. Wouldn't you like to know that someone comes up behind you? They're a gentle person, gentle voice. They put their arm around you and they say, hey, Margie, my name is Steve. Um, You're safe with me. I'm going to walk you to an exit. Stay with me. Come with me. Right. Like, wouldn't that be nice?
3: It's and it and I I you know acknowledge it's not necessarily the most common practice in haunted attractions but in the in the bigger attractions you know that are doing over 30,000 people a year in the attractions inside amusement parks you know you do see training with staff about how they should handle those situations and certainly there's no expectation that these employees would be Uh, social workers or trained in any kind of clinical interventions. Um, Typically the advice to staff is, you know, you just basically show this person how they can exit safely. Um, But uh, I I think that, you know, it is, it is good to just be aware of course. People are going to a haunted house because they probably want to push their limits. Um, So you don't want to interfere with that, but at the same time have, you know, people who are, on the lookout for when um, someone might be having a panic attack or an anxiety attack. Um, You know, even if it's just for insurance liability reasons, you really don't want guests having some sort of um, medical emergency on your property.
1: Well, that's a, it's difficult on everyone else. um, That's for sure. So, change the change the topic, right? Change mm-hmm. the clarity. If we talked about pain as opposed to, since you have background in pain, versus fear, yeah. I mean, fear is such an emotional response anyway. Somebody who has an elastic band on their wrist, and they might somehow, for, whether it's distraction or, or pattern interruption or whatever, maybe they just like the stimulation, they snap an elastic on their wrist. Mm-hmm. That same person, I can't imagine falling off their bicycle and breaking their leg and going, mm-hmm. oh yeah, that feels great, right? Like, I mean, there yeah. is a point there is a threshold that we can tolerate that we all talk about, you know, with pain. Right. And we've all been through things. I had a toenail get cut in half with scissors and taken out with no anesthetic once. And let me tell you, my pain threshold changed that day.
3: Yeah.
1: (laughs) So um, how do we tell when for somebody it goes, and this is the sociology psychology part that I don't understand because you study societies Mm -hmm. and groups and people and, and so help me with that, is that at what point does it cross over from, you know, playful fun and an experience into, by the way, now I have nightmares. And that, because that that could not be felt for quite some time after.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I I think that it, it, first it's for parents who are bringing, you know, children up to 18. I think it's important for them to have an idea of what they're child's distress tolerance or stress sensitivity is and typically parents do have a idea of where their kid is in that whole in that spectrum of you know being more sensitive to being more um, well you know to not to to being able to handle a lot of scary content but um, when I talk to people who think they might like to do something scary, but aren't really sure, I encourage them to go in with an attitude of adventure and curiosity and to start small, you know, and to just build up until you find your own threshold because it, these opportunities to scare yourself and in those moments of, you know, snapping a um, rubber band um, or just wanting to find some sort of external physical, you know, sensation, Um it's tools that we can use to either help understand ourselves better, to practice being scared. Um, in the case of using stimulation on your skin, or the rubber band, or something like that, it can be a tool to distract you from things that you're thinking about. You know, nothing really prioritizes um, more quickly than trying to address pain or, or some sort of sensation that's uncomfortable. It's going to pull all of our attention. Same thing with fear. You know, as soon as that is that sympathetic nervous system response, the threat response starts um, going towards the ceiling, all of our um, body's resources are reprioritizing to make sure that we can get away um, or that we can try and stop the pain. So it can be a, a good tool for distracting from internal cycling thoughts. And that's what we found in our research in terms of the decrease in global brain reactivity after doing uh, a haunted experience. Um, There's just uh, evidence that people just don't get as caught up in their own internal dialogue. So it can be a way to kind of turn down the dial on that. Um, More research needs to happen, of course. But um, when you look at ultramarathon runners or rock climbers, people who are really pushing their body, there are some crossovers, some similarities to when we intentionally really, you know, get scared in terms of what's happening in our brain. We're really focused um, in our body and, and not so much in our mind. And in our research, we saw that that was related to improved mood, that, you know, people who had that decrease in global brain reactivity also had higher moods. So, Um, In the right context, it can be nice to kind of turn down the dial uh, on what's happening inside the brain.
1: Yeah, my thought was I'm glad that you brought up rock climbing because my thought was skydivers. And I would say that oh, that's yeah, probably ab- absolutely in the, in the same sort of moment of sure. looking at the situation. Okay, so let's draw a comparison then. If getting into that where now if my language is right, the you know, your limbic system is firing like mad, you're like, you know, get me out of here or I'm going to protect myself. And your brain goes quiet, we all know that part. If you look at study and practice of meditation, All of those things, everything that you just said, if we had not prefaced it with haunted houses and fear, most belief systems, most study of self, um, and that presence of peace of mind, you could have taken everything that you said and said, that has to do with becoming a monk, right? That this is an opportunity to sit down and get quiet and be present. And so I'm sitting here looking at this conversation going, are you telling me that sitting down quietly b- under a tree by a creek and having exercise and practice of peaceful mind is fundamentally the same as terrorizing yourself.
3: I wouldn't say fundamentally the same. <laughs> <laughs> and, and definitely we need a lot more um, research looking at this. But there is similarities in the um, activity in the brain between meditating um people who are meditating and what we found in our study. And it's funny because my best friend, she is, you know, really into yoga and meditation. She meditates all the time. And we kind of joke that, you know, she's getting to that place through this very solid practice that requires years to really get to a point of total, um, you know, peace of mind. And I use the, the quicker, easier way of just doing something scary. That's <laughs> um, crazy. So it's, but it's, it's not foundationally the same. Right. Um, but I think it is interesting that there are those overlaps that we, we need to investigate more.
1: It sounds very similar. And uh, I get that part. Most of us have experienced at least lying in bed, trying to go to sleep at night, but in many situations, the internal chatter, to get to such a point where you're like, okay, well, you keep it down. Like we've all been there. I guess I just struggle with, you know, maybe it's just more my nature to sit down by the Creek and do it that way versus run in traffic, you know?
3: Yeah. (laughs) And definitely if you're trying to fall asleep, doing something very scary beforehand, it's going to take you a while to get to a point where you can actually go to sleep because your body is going to be just launched into that fight or flight mode where you have all of the, uh, hormones and, um, changes happening that are going to keep us going are going to keep us very awake and very alert. So, um, when trying to calm down at night, meditation is, is likely the better path to that. But if you're looking for, you know, uh, something fun to do on a Saturday night that has an added benefit of just being able to kind of get out of your head for a while, then, Scary movie, haunted house, roller coasters, things like that mm. um, can do the trick.
1: I do like roller coasters. That's fun. Yeah. So I, I what I'm taking away is the, really that safety piece, right? Is you feel like you're in control of the safety piece. I did one of those reverse bungee things. You've seen that where you climb in the pod, usually two seats, and then they like pull the bungee and then it shoots the pod way high in the air.
3: Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, bounce I around a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I remember
1: I was in there and I was the guy put me in and the seat kind of went clunk, 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 clunk. And I was like, can you click it one more time? He's like, that's going to be really tight. And I was like, no problem. And so he clicked it one more time and I was so stuck to the seat, but yeah. I felt safe. And then I thoroughly yeah. enjoyed it. I know that if it had moved, I would have been gripping on tight, afraid to fall out, all of those yeah. things. I can tell you where your mind doesn't get quiet when you get scared, though. Where? That's when you're sleeping at night and you get woken oh. awakened by a thump or a noise. Oh, and then, yes. then your brain goes, what the hell was that? And then the scenarios just pour in because you're trying to calculate what was that sound? What did it sound like? Where did it come from? Was in my oh, sleep? Was yeah. it real life? And you're running around. And guess what they make horror movies about?
3: <laughs> just that. Exactly. <laughs> People trying to get into your house. Oh, no. I <laughs> No, it is the worst. (laughs) And that's the power of our imagination, too. It could have just been a creak in the wall. But, you know, a half hour later, we've envisioned the intruders coming through the doors and all of these awful things that could be happening. And so we can definitely think ourselves into a very, very extreme state of of fear and panic. Um, The mind is an amazing thing.
1: (laughs) All right. So, Margie, um, yours is... You know, is, is Haunted Houses, what it, like if you had to pick one of the favorite of the scaries for you, that you get to turn your brain off, have a good time, and you still feel in control, is it a particular movie, scenario, activity? What is it?
3: Uh, haunted Houses definitely are high on the list, especially ones that are really kind of uh, have a lot of intensity and are actually shorter. So the ones that are, you know, you go in and you're going from one room to the other. You're getting carried along. You almost feel like you are just sort of getting carried along, that you're not really um, thinking about having to go here or there, make decisions at all. Um, So those are really fun for me, um, especially if it includes a lot of disorientation and a lot of just, you know, you have no idea what way is up. Um, And then after that, the, the physical thrills. So Um, I went skydiving. It was amazing. It was bliss. I thought it was just, if I could do it every morning, that would be, that would be great. Um, Or roller coasters or, um, you know, even going for an intense run and doing a sprint, just something to to get, get everything going, shake it up.
1: It's neat to, uh, it's really cool to hear the parallels between all yeah. of it. And, uh, and that's fascinating. Thank you so much for being a part of this and, sure. and sharing this with us. I, um, it's opening for me as a guy who's kind of like, I don't like the images to let those images into my mm-hmm. heart. Um, yeah. and so that, that's really my boundary on it, yeah. but I think, I, I think it's nice to understand it a little differently. I think I'm a little less judgmental after this conversation to hear the parallels that we all go through. Very cool.
3: Yeah. Well, thank you for for giving me time to talk about it. And we're excited. This year, we are collecting data um, a few days later and a week after people go through a haunted house, which is exciting. It's the first time we'll be able to get some follow-up data and see how long the effects might last, the emotional kind of um, uh, hangover, Mm -hmm. (laughs) will you say, to after an experience so we're still, come back we're still and tell us a lot that? to learn sure, it's done, sure yeah i would love sure. to hear that
1: i would love to hear more yeah. about this because this is fascinating yeah. to me this is the human experience at its best and at its worst all mixed right. into one.
3: Oh, yep very well put agree
1: oh <laughs> uh, it's a pleasure to meet you thank you yeah.
3: you too you too thanks a lot
1: this is
2: the shift podcast Weird. It got very weird. I don't understand. Welcome to the world of weird things with Greg Fish.
0: Hi, Greg. Nice to nice to have you one on one here. Here we go. This is exciting. Yeah, how's it going? It's going great, buddy. Well, thank you so much. You're my first. Uh, you're my first interview on the shift, eh? There you go. The first like solo one. Aside from when Jane lets me talk about sneakers and millennial on the radio, this is very exciting for me.
4: <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm. Honored, that's all I can say. We're My gonna, we're gonna geek mine. this up. We're gonna geek. Also, yeah. this, well,
0: this is this is such a fascinating uh pocket of space, pockets of space, I should say, that I never would have thought would have existed. And so they're called, according to your article, which you can find at the world of zombie planets. Now, when you first sent this to me, I was assuming these are planets that died and came back to life. But from what I'm now reading, these are not planets that died. These are planets that are born out of the death of of space itself. Is that that right?
4: Basically, they essentially arise from the grave of other planets and stars. Jeez. So how... How and why does that happen? So we don't exactly know why that happens, but we do have a pretty good idea as to how. So one of the more interesting things is that these planets were actually the very first exoplanets that were ever found by astronomers. We thought— Yeah, because most people would say, hey, you know, we probably find these, you know, big gas giants around stars because those gas giants are big and they target the stars. And then we know, we, OK, there's a planet there um, because it's very large and it's very close and has a lot of influence. No, what we actually did is we this is the first planet that we found was a zombie planet. So here's what happens there. Well, or rather what happened, there was a planet orbiting a neutron star and we don't think that that's possible because well hold on a minute a neutron star is the result of a supernova A supernova blows everything away there's literally nothing in existence that we know of could that could possibly withstand the explosion of a supernova um, or rather a supernova event so how is this planet getting here And the thought was, what's probably happening is that when a supernova goes off, there's all this debris that is essentially left over from the explosion. And what if that debris forms just far enough out to feel the tides of the neutron star and little disturbances in it, just like what happens in a new solar system, start creating planets. And that's Seems to be pretty much the only way possible for these planets to come into existence and end up orbiting neutron stars. And we further discovered that the particular neutron star in question isn't just a single neutron star, it doesn't just have a single planet, but it has multiple planets around it, which again means that an entire mini solar system was born out of the death of the star that left behind this neutron uh this this pulsing neutron star which is just wild so uh, just before we talk about the planets
0: just so that everybody like understands what the neutron star so after a star goes supernova there's the massive explosion eradicating everything around it like if our sun went supernova there wouldn't be much left right and then what's left is the remnants of that star restarting again, or is it a, a brand new star built from just the sheer force of the explosion? Can you just quickly
4: run over that before we go to the planets? So the neutron star itself is what happened to the core of that dead star. It okay. essentially, so so two events happened during the supernova. The first is the explosion, that big cloud of dust and energy and radiation coming at you at the speed of light and basically obliterating everything within at least a dozen light years just literally everything is gone Yep. and then at the same time there's an implosion because stars all stars but especially massive stars always fight this balance between the gravity pushing them to collapse into themselves and the pressure of the fusion pushing them out by the time that a massive star is ready to go supernova, its core has a very heavy component of iron, and iron is a very interesting chem- is, is a very interesting atom because trying to fuse iron doesn't actually give you any net gain in energy. You, it's basically hitting the point of diminishing returns. So right. that pressure of the fusion isn't keeping. These, these quadrillions upon quadrillions upon quadrillions of tons of matter from just imploding in on themselves. And as they implode in on themselves at almost the speed of light, they crunch into this bizarre, super, hyper dense object that has basically the mass of our sun and then some, but only crammed into about 20 to 30 miles across.
0: It's just it's so cool. It's one of the reasons why I wanted you to talk about neutron stars because they're just such a fascinating uh, a fascinating thing. Uh, and, and, yeah, we actually just got a text from Trucker Dan. You should do a fair amount of research on how neutron stars work. They're beyond fascinating and cool on a level you haven't experienced. No joke. But, I mean, we can talk about neutron stars all day. We're talking about zombie planets. Now, so if we are now creating a planet in the aftermath of a explosion that is so large, it's almost incomprehensible. You know, our planet earth as beautiful as it is, was at one point just a bunch of magma and rock and now ends up as this beautiful, you know, place of life and joy well joy questionable but right now at least so we have that but what would a zombie planet look like would it have the same kind of growth into a potentially life harboring planet or is it just a wasteland from the sheer force of the debris that it's built
4: on oh i appreciate your optimism about the life on it uh (laughs) so here's so here's the thing It's a little bit of both and also neither because your typical zombie world is going to be subjected to absolutely horrifying amounts of radiation that are coming from the neutron star. So Trucker Dan's right, neutron stars are very extreme. We actually did a segment on it back, back, back in the day. And uh, one of the more interesting things about neutron stars is that they spin very rapidly because all of that momentum from the rotating star is conserved. So when it implodes, it's transferred to that new hyperdense object. So as a result, it churns a lot. And because the different layers inside it that are also incredibly dense churn at different speeds, it creates incredibly powerful magnetic fields. And when I say incredibly powerful magnetic fields, I mean, from the from a million miles away, it would wipe all information on your computers, credit cards, what have you. And at 250,000 miles away, it would literally tear your atoms apart. So that's the force of magnetism oh. we're talking about.
0: Good. So, okay, so, so clearly we've got radiation, we've got magnetism. It's a wonder yep. how they're even
4: holding together as a rock. So what's on the surface? So that's the question. Probably just a lot of rock and ice that's being constantly bombarded by gamma rays that are whipped around by these enormous magnetic fields. And uh, you essentially have... If if the actual pulsar, if the death beam from it hits the uh, planet directly, then the sky's kind of like a strobe light. You know, you just see... It's, it's kind of like being in a club, only, you know, the light is, is deadly. Uh, hmm. And if the death beam from this neutron star misses the zombie planet, then you get that kind of, yes, you get some lights and streaking and, and all sorts of things in the sky, and you get that shower of radiation sideways. So it it's really very problematic. There's only one possible scenario where life could exist on the zombie world, and that scenario is you need to have a planet that is about one to four times as massive as Earth, also known as a super Earth, okay, it's manageable. Likely, likely about two, because that's kind of how the physics shakes out. And it also needs an atmosphere about a million times thicker than Earth's. Somehow, <laughs> a mil- Could you even let's let's just say Earth's atmosphere had
0: was a million times thicker? Would we be able to breathe if it was that thick? Could you even move if it was that thick? No. Would
4: we feel no, that effects would- down here? Or it would crush you. It would be like being yeah. at the bottom of the Mariana <laughs> Trench and then some.
0: Okay, so okay, so if there is life on this planet, I'm assuming it's not taking a stroll down Radiation Lane. It's down like in the bottom of an ocean then probably.
4: it's be- Yeah, it's either down at the bottom of an ocean, which would be even worse, or it is actually kind of maybe taking a stroll in a valley oh. because the, the, the incredibly thick atmosphere protects it. But think of it as very tough life, basically armored tanks trying to live off of volcanic, sulfuric deposits. Basically, imagine the kind of life that lives at the bottom of the the Mariana Trench, and that's kind of what you're dealing with, but without the buoyancy of water. So it it, it becomes – although it's very possible that at that kind of – thickness with that kind of pressure the gas will turn into a liquid and it could technically swim through air so there's there's some very interesting things that might happen on such a zombie world and funny enough that very first planet that we found orbiting a neutron star actually does meet that criteria potentially so we need to figure out whether the atmosphere is thick enough but you know again million times thicker than earth it's a bit of a challenge
0: I think one of the most fascinating things about this is let's just say we, dis, you know, we discovered and built a faster than light ship. We were able to travel anywhere in the universe in any amount of time. And we found this planet, which I don't think has a cool name. I think it's what PSR B one, two, five, seven plus 12 is, I think, the name of the planet. And according to your just article rolls off, the just
4: rolls off the tongue, Exa- doesn't it? Yeah,
0: poetic, isn't it? So let's say we get to PSR. Humans would want to try to find a way to land on it, even though it's a billion times thicker. This uh, there's a neutron star. There's all this radiation. I am sure we would at least go because this is what we are. We would go. All right, yeah, let's try it. Is there any possible way? I mean, like, what would it take to even explore a planet like this? Because I mean, we're having difficulty figuring out how to do Mars. Like, I can't even comprehend the kind of equipment and technology we would need to brave this kind of a planet.
4: So, funny enough, there is actually uh, a very classic piece of Soviet science fiction from the late 1950s that imagines what happened if you were, were to do that. Uh, the author is Ivan Yefremov, and the novel is called Tomanes Andromeda, or The Andromeda Nebula. It's, there's an English translation available that's just called Andromeda. Um, and in that particular scenario, uh, he imagines that Essentially, the the neutron star's gravity would pull you down to that planet, and okay. in his particular uh, universe, the crew is attacked by these Medusa-like energy vampires. That's who he would mm. he kind of pictured living on these kinds of worlds. <laughs> now, sure. the reality, you know, this was the best that 1957 could offer in terms of uh, in terms of knowledge. You know, to the point where they call it an iron star in the book instead of a neutron star, uh, okay. but. But in reality, what would happen is that you need a very powerful magnetic field on your own to try and deflect the radiation. You mm-hmm. would need a lot of very powerful shielding that would probably involve lead and a lot of ice water because water is very good at blocking a lot of stray particles. You would also need um, a lot of uh, radiation treatments, and you would need an extremely an extremely sturdy ship that will descend down to the planet and that would weigh a lot because you need to counter all that ridiculous pressure and then the problem becomes how do you get this thing back Back up up. because if because if you think it's difficult to get through the earth's atmosphere on a rocket imagine what happens when the when the atmosphere is a million times (laughs) thicker
0: you need a lot of a, a lot of gas uh, or a several nuclear reactors is strapped to your engine. So I mean, that's just cool. I mean, I would be amazing to see what was on, you know, we, we think about irradiated landscape, you think of, you know, mutant creatures and all that stuff. And that's usually in the context of like post apocalyptic fiction and, and stuff like that. I think of the Fallout video game franchise, but this is, you know, so out there on on the and I think it's interesting to comprehend the sheer hostility of some worlds and yet this inexplicable way that somehow life will maybe find a way to happen even though it really shouldn't and really can't but somehow it will and that's just what I think I guess the name zombie planet
4: really uh, they they take the name well I mean as as we were taught by Jurassic Park life uh, finds a way, uh, finds uh, a way. so yeah. So but so interestingly though with that in mind there's also another possibility for a zombie planet which is orbiting a black hole. Oh okay. So my favorite
0: movie of all time is Interstellar which is a Christopher yeah. Nolan film space film and they visit planets that orbit black holes and you know it deals with time and all that it's fascinating. So uh I I I have two questions for you. Is it possible that something could orbit a black hole and is it sustainable? Because,
4: I mean, it wouldn't eventually just get sucked into the black hole? Uh, yes, and not necessarily. Okay. So if you put in, obviously, there are some things in Interstellar that are incredibly accurate in terms of how a black hole would look. But in terms of having the two planets that are orbiting that close to the black hole, that's not possible. They would need to right. be at least 10 light years away. 10 light years
0: and- from the from the black hole to, yes. and they would
4: still, so at 10 light
0: years, they would still be able to orbit. That's how. So, Correct. That's, and how, f- we're not even a light year away from the sun, are we? Not even?
4: No, we're nowhere close to, light. if we were a light year away from, from our sun, we would basically be at the temperature, the same temperature Pluto is, and our atmosphere would essentially solidify and fall down as snow.
0: Okay, so that's ridiculous, okay, so ten light years away, and you could still orbit, okay, so let's say we get to that threshold,
4: then what well there then kind of nothing it it would be a stable orbit, but it would obviously be quite cold um, yes. it may be po- it may be possible that there is may might be some warmth from the radiation that's emitted by the black hole eating something because as mm. a black hole, especially a supermassive black hole eats gas and dust, it's accelerated so quickly around the black hole that it can reach up to a billion degrees. So there's a lot of light, there's a lot of radiation. It may actually be able to hit the planet and warm it up to some degree. It would be just far enough to not get hit with the worst of it. But at the same time, it's probably not going to be enough to permanently sustain life. You might have some short bursts of things evolving but as soon as the black hole stops feeding or if it goes dormant that activity ceases and you kind of plunge right back into the cold and dark wow
0: that's just well well, one thing i also really appreciate from zombie planets is just living into the idea of being an undead planet not only were we created by death we're going to choose of all things to sometimes orbit around a black hole and we can do it if we want and we don't care so it's just is this is this really one of the most extreme things that we could perceive or find in space or uh, is this like is this you know like a kids movie in comparison to some of the other stuff out there?
4: Uh, you know what we don't know that's the that's the kind of yeah. very cool thing about space. Space is vast. There's a lot of things that are possible. and I think that every time you say, wow, we think we found the most extreme thing that's possible in space. And I think the universe kind of takes it as a challenge and says, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, watch this, hold my beer. Um, (laughs) It is the hold my beer of space. Because uh, think about this for a second. We live in a universe where if you take literally everything away from a pocket of space, there is still something there. The space itself seems to carry a force within it. And when, that, and when those forces have enough room to really truly spread out, they coalesce into particles that carry these fields, this electromagnetic fields, this gravitational field, and manifest themselves as strong and weak nuclear forces and start putting together matter out of literally nothing just because the fabric of space and time is unstable. This, of course, this only happens in very extreme environments. Like we're talking event horizons of black holes. We're talking about incredibly fast spinning, incredibly magnetic neutron stars that are known as magnetars. Um, Magnetars. And this happens on a tiny scale. But but think about that. If we have an unstable fabric of space time, what else is possible? Like it's it's really we. It's possible to get if it's possible to get matter out of nothing. Without technically violating the laws of the universe, what other things might be possible? we don't it's, know We'll. I don't think terrifying. we'll ever know all of it no I don't think we will and it
0: makes me very appreciative of where we currently reside in space I like keeping it simple Greg thank you so much for bringing this story uh, to us uh, he is Greg Fish he's an engineer, a blogger you can find his website at worldofweirdthings.com we will post this to the Shift Head Facebook group thanks Greg hope you have a fantastic rest of your week
4: you too
1: always a pleasure